This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 14th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we avoid big data traps, and David Grimm is here with the latest stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. In 2008, Google launched Flu Trends, a tool intended to predict flu outbreaks based on user search terms related to the illness. But in the years since its launch, Google Flu Trends has lost its predictive power. I spoke with David Lazar about the fate of Flu Trends and how lessons from this project can be generalized to other big data sets from the web and beyond. Our objective in this paper was to give a hard look at Google Flu Trends, which I think is one of the outstanding examples of the use of big data for big social purposes. And while we see that there's substantial value in Google Flu Trends, we also see evidence of important mistakes that have lessons for how we should use big data going forward. So you use Google Flu Trends throughout your article to illustrate traps in big data analysis. What's happening with the flu tracking tool? When did it go off the rails? What is not going right with it? Well, it actually started going off the rails quite early in 2009 when there was an off-season pandemic. At that point, it likely reflected the fact that they had overfit the data, that they had 50 million search terms, and they found some that happened to fit the frequency of the flu over the preceding decade or so, but really they were getting idiosyncratic terms that were peaking in the winter around the time that flu mm -hmm. peaks, that happened to be when the flu peaks, but wasn't really driven by the fact that people were sick with the flu. And so when there was a flu outbreak that was off-season, they missed it entirely. They then fixed that, but then 
the Google food trend started going off the rails again in 2011, 2012, systematically missing high. And actually, it's been missing high ever since by a wide margin. So when you say missing high, you mean that it's saying a lot more flu is happening than actually is happening? That's right. Google Flu Trends has been systematically overestimating the number of flu cases ever since 2011. Okay. So to explain these prediction errors, you mentioned two contributing factors, big data hubris and algorithm dynamics. Let's start with hubris. What are some of the flags that you've seen uh, in the case of the flu tracker? Well, a few. Uh, there are a few examples. And by hubris, I just mean that there were certain assumptions baked into the analysis that doomed it to failure in the long run. Mm -hmm. For example, they baked into the model the assumption that the association between flu prevalence and search terms was stable. And instead, what we've seen is that those terms have become more and more frequent relative to the actual frequency of the flu. And so a very simple fix, now this wouldn't have been optimal, but it would have been simple and it would have improved matters quite a bit, would have been just simply to say, oh, let's recalibrate this on occasion. So, oh, we see it's overestimating, so we can just tune down the understood association. Moving on to algorithms, I think this was very on point. Google takes great care to protect its search algorithms. And, you know, our searches aren't just calculated to find something we are looking for, but Google is also trying to influence what's presented to us. If one relies on this as the basis for data collection, how might that be a problem? Well, the the Google search algorithm is constantly changing, and I think Google is trying to improve it to make it more useful to customers. They're also trying to get people to click on ads more because Mm -hmm. that's how they make money. What we see in the case of Google Flu Trends is that it seems likely that the Google search algorithm, when you start searching for things around the flu, starts routing you to additional searches, like around cures for the flu. So it will suggest more searches for you. That means that the number of searches related to the flu goes up. So if the algorithm starts pushing you to search for something like cures for the flu, then something like Google Flu Trends will start saying, oh, lots of people have the flu. And that's because actually in the other part of the building, the people working on the algorithm are actually pointing people to click on that. It's not because more people in the world have the flu. And that's just a reflection of Google making their algorithm more useful and also trying to get people to click on more advertising. I have nothing against them for doing that, but it again highlights that any measures out of looking at search terms are not really going to be stable measures of an underlying phenomenon like prevalence of the flu. So Google not only changes their algorithm, but they also don't publicize what they take into consideration when they, you know, do a search or what they count as a flu term? Well, there are a few things there. And I want to separate out the people working on the Google search algorithm versus the people working on Google flu trends. Okay. Because it's not clear to me that they talk much. (laughs) So it's not like people change the algorithm and then get on the phone to talk to the people working on Google flu trends and say, oh, we just changed the algorithm in a way that's going to change the number of searches, right? So even though Google does have a blog and they talk about some of the changes and there's a whole series of entries about how they change health-related searches over time, you really could not look at the change in the algorithm and saying, oh, you're going to get a 10% bump in that search term. The other issue you've touched on, and this is on the research side, is that it's not 
transparent how Google Flu Trends was generated. That is, we have a general sense of the methodology, but we're missing a lot of the details. We don't know what those terms are, though it's impossible to independently validate. Mm -hmm. Well, let's step away from Google for a second and kind of talk about the generalizability here. What else might be tempting research with, you know, vast stores of data, but then they're hampered with this transparency issue or, you know, the commercial interests of the data provider? Are we just talking about things like Twitter or Google? I think that this is quite common. One big challenge confronting academia and just confronting the whole system of knowledge production and big data is how do we build collaborations that somehow respects privacy, commercial interests, but also allows for transparency, replication, and all that stuff that's really necessary for advancing science in this area in the 21st century. But in terms of how general these issues are around things like the algorithm or how these might not be stable measures and so on are actually endemic. Often you're dealing with secondary uses of administrative data that was collected for other reasons, and whoever is collecting it is not trying to maximize the scientific value of those data. And I think it's not an insurmountable challenge, but it's one that the researcher better be aware of or else they'll get trapped in the big data. So people who, you know, take measurements can structure how they measure and what kind of data they're collecting. But when you're harvesting from another organization or a big institution or the web, all that's out the window and you have to be really careful. That's right. Most of these big data are, in fact, digital refuse, right? They're, they're just sort of the leftovers from the primary thing that other organizations are doing. And they weren't designed with science in mind. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what we can get out of these giant data sets, this digital refuse. What could we learn if only the right procedures and tools were in place? Well, in fact, I think that there's a lot of gold in there. And I actually think that the most exciting scientific frontiers in understanding human behavior are in big data. So I don't want to seem like someone who's anti-big data because Mm -hmm. actually that's where I do most of my research. Our takeaway right now with Google Flu Trends is that it actually does not offer much improvement over the existing data from the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. But if Google Flu Trends is done properly, it can give you spatial dynamics at a much finer granularity than the CDC. And that could be extremely valuable for developing generative models, projecting flu forward months ahead of time. And so I think that there are awesome possibilities with Google Flu Trends, and I think that's exemplary of what the possibilities are for other big data. To understand social dynamics, to understand society at scale, I mean, literally, it's not just talking about social science, but talking about societal science because we can actually use these big data to see all of society changing at the individual level, hour by hour, potentially. I mean, wow. I mean, that is new. And that is not your 20th century social science. I think that in some sense we're talking about the possibilities of a 21st century societal science. Hmm. David Lazar, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. David Lazar and colleagues write about traps in big data analysis in a policy forum this week. Finally today, David Grimm 
editor for our online daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on what elephants understand. Elephants have some pretty complex behaviors, and we've talked about a few of them on the podcast, from elephants feeling compassion for one another to how elephant social order is impacted by trauma. But what about their social relationships with people? In a new study out this week, we learned that human language has an important role in our relationships with elephants. What languages are we talking about, Dave? We're talking about a couple of African languages, one spoken by Maasai pastoralists. The Maasai men, particularly, don't have a great relationship with elephants. They kill them from time to time, either because the elephants are encroaching on their land or just to protest park policies in the Kenya's Amboseli National Park where they live. The other group is a group known as the Kamba, and Kamba men actually have a much better relationship with elephants. They're basically farmers that live in this area as well, but they don't threaten the animals. And so the researchers went into this thinking that the elephants could somehow recognize language? Well, they already knew that elephants made some complex distinctions between these two groups. If, for example, the Maasai men wear these very distinctive red robes, and the elephants, when they see that, they get very defensive. What the researchers were wondering was, could the elephants actually make distinctions between these two groups based solely on language alone. And so how did they narrow it down to just those variables? Well, what they did was they recorded men from both groups and they recorded women and boys from both groups as well. And the people said things like, look, look over there, a group of elephants are coming. And if you listen to the sound file, this is actually a Maasai man speaking that phrase. And what they found was that the elephants really picked up on who was speaking and responded appropriately. So when they heard Maasai men speaking and the researchers played these recordings over loudspeakers to the elephants, they became very defensive. They retreated, they bunched together, they raised their trunks skyward, all very defensive behaviors when they heard the Maasai men speak. But they didn't have these behaviors when they heard Maasai women or children speak, or when they heard the Kamba people speak. So even men speaking that other language didn't have the same effect. Exactly. And so I thought it was great they compared this to a lion. How does it relate to what happens when they hear a lion noise? Right, and because when the elephants hear lions, they actually get very aggressive. They actually can charge the lions and try to drive them off, but they must have learned over the years that it's very hard to drive humans off and that humans are going to try to kill them anyways, and therefore they are much more defensive. To me, this demonstrates the extremely high intelligence of these animals. But is there anything else we can take away from the study? Well, well, the hope is if elephants can understand us to some degree, maybe we can actually speak to them in a sense and try to keep them away from these situations where they would encounter people that would be trying to kill them. Next up, we have a story on microbial warfare against us. Dave, I'm sure that you've had bad food adventures like me. This apple looks okay, small bite, no. Or pouring milk on your cereal and realizing something smells a little bit off and into the trash it goes. The question is, does spoiled food taste bad for a reason? Are tiny microbial poisoners saying, stay away, this is mine? 
Let's start at the beginning. When did people start even asking this question? Well, this actually comes from a 1977 paper from a researcher named Daniel Jansen, who was inspired to write the paper because he was really upset he had paid 95 cents and gotten a rotten avocado. And he began to theorize that maybe the avocado was rotten, not simply just because it had spoiled, but because the microbes that inhabited it were trying to keep him from eating it. So this theory was really intriguing, but over the past few decades, scientists have had a hard time proving it. And in fact, they recently in 2006 found some evidence against it. They said, well, you know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for microbes to be trying to fight us because that would take a lot of energy for them to be secreting poisons into this fruit or other food just to keep it away from humans. If they're spending all this energy doing that and other microbes aren't, they're going to be quickly outcompeted by these microbes. So what's new? What's changed about how researchers are able to look into this problem? Well, the researchers in this new study looked at it a different way. The previous work in 2006 had sort of assumed all microbes kind of land on fruit at the same time, and they're all competing against each other. But the researchers in this new study wondered, well, you know, say these poisoning microbes get there first. If they get there first, they actually can gain an advantage by poisoning the food, because not only are they keeping potentially humans away, but they keep other microbes away as well, so they can get rid of their competitors really quickly instead of having to compete against them. Okay, I'm going to flip it around here. We're going to make it a which came first, the egg or the chicken problem. (laughs) How do we know that people and other animals didn't just evolve to dislike this flavor or not want to eat it because, you know, eating rotten food could kill you? Right. It's always very difficult to prove causation, especially in a state like this. You've got a very interesting correlation going on, but the jury is still out about whether microbes even care about us. As one expert says in the study, to a microbe busily rotting a banana, do we even exist? Finally, we have a story on the genetics of human pigmentation. The textbook explanation for why some humans have light skin and some have dark has to do with the lifting of constraint. When some of our ancient ancestors left Africa, they moved north and no longer had this intense UV rays of the equatorial living situation to contend with. But these people did face a new challenge in the chilly north, right, Dave? That's right. So as people moved out of Africa and moved into places like Europe especially, very dark skin wasn't as advantageous as it had been in Africa. There wasn't as much UV radiation to contend with. These people were farther away from the equator. And as a result, they could, over evolutionary time, get lighter skin, which would have a benefit in this case, which is allowing them to produce vitamin D, which is also very important for us. So moving north, you know, they didn't need to protect themselves as much, but they did need to start producing more vitamin D. Exactly. And lighter skin allowed that to happen. This is all a very long time ago. Homo sapiens arose in Africa about 200,000 years ago and migrated into Europe about 40,000 years ago. When did these changes in appearances first come into effect? Well, scientists had long thought these changes happened pretty soon after people moved out of Africa. So this would have happened tens of thousands of years ago. But this new study suggests a lot of these changes may have happened a lot more recently than that. So in this new study, they tried to get a take a closer look at when exactly these changes were happening and what the pressures were. That's right. And they looked at 60 modern-day Ukrainians, and they compared them to skeletons, 63 skeletons, in fact, that had been previously found at archaeological sites in modern-day Ukraine. And these skeletons dated anywhere from between about 6,500 years old and 4,000 years old. And what they did was they looked at the DNA of 
both of these groups, and they were looking for genes that are responsible for pigmentation, also genes that are responsible for things like hair color and eye color. Well, what were the the differences and similarities between these two groups in terms of well, those genes? Well, what they found is even at this late stage of people being in Europe, there seemed to be very strong what's called genetic selection for lighter skin and also a lighter hair and uh, lighter eyes as well. And this is kind of surprising because you would have expected this strong selection for these traits to have happened a lot earlier in people in Europe, but still seems to be happening relatively recently in human history. So modern Ukrainians also had more variety in the genes that determine the color of the skin, the hair, and the eyes. That's right. There's just more choices for them. How do we know that this was selection and not just, oh, there's no more constraint, we can mutate these and it won't hurt us that much? Well, that's the question. Why was this happening so recently? And the hypothesis the scientists have is that when we first came into Europe, we were still hunter-gatherers, which meant we were still getting a lot of vitamin D from the foods that we were eating. But as we became farmers, which only happened, you know, a few thousand years ago, then we started giving up these foods that may have been rich in vitamin D, turning more to grains and crops that were lower in vitamin D, at which point we really had to have lighter skin to get the vitamin D that we needed. So it was diet changing as well as location. That's right. Well, what does it say about um, the change in hair and eyes that was also happening at the same time? Well, that's a more interesting question. And one idea the researchers have is this idea that when these traits arose, and they, they probably arose fairly randomly, light hair, blue eyes, for example, that they were so unusual that the people that had them were strongly sexually desired. And the reason these traits proliferated is because these people were, for all intents and purposes, having a lot more sex than people that had maybe darker features, and therefore these genes spread fairly rapidly throughout the population. Well, so is there anything in the genetic evidence that's suggesting that that's what's happening? Well, we do know in other animals like guppies that individuals that develop unique traits become more sexually successful. So it's a big leap from guppies to humans, but it's possible the same thing happened. What else is on the site, Dave? Well, Sarah, this week we've got a story about what your hello says about you. Also a story about Neanderthal diets and how they may have been much different than we thought. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a shift in tactics among animal rights extremists, how they're more often targeting individuals rather than universities. Also a story about a legislative proposal by U.S. Republicans to reshape a major chunk of the U.S. government science funding enterprise. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out our latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.